0: I had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Brand just uh, a few months ago and uh, hear his life story and it really impacted my life. You're just going to be amazed at the stories and incidences that he shares and uh, be drawn closer to God in the whole process. Let's get back to Dr. Paul Brand. I can't wait for you to hear this interview. For those of you that don't know, Dr. Brand is a world-renowned hand surgeon and leprosy specialist. He was born to missionary parents in India. He grew up in very exotic circumstances. Uh, He developed an interest in leprosy and uh, dealing with reconstructive surgery to correct deformities of leprosy in the hands and feet and became a world authority on this issue. Many of you know of his books that he has written. He's received many awards. Uh, I could spend the rest of the tape just telling you about them. But I want you to hear his story from him. Uh, Listen now. Dr. Brand, I'll call you Paul, though I feel like I should call you Dr. I I wanted to get you on and just to kind of tell your story. You had such a fascinating life, and God's done so many things through you. And I I think one of the hardest challenges is to say, I want you to tell your story in 20 minutes uh, or 30 or whatever this turns out to be. But just share with us, those of us who are younger that are coming along the path behind you, how God led you and the lessons he taught you in that journey.
1: Of course, I think I was much influenced by being a missionary kid. I was born out in India, up in the mountains, and my parents were missionaries. They were neither of them doctors, but both had taken what was common in those days for missionaries, which uh, to take a year's study of health and medicine without bothering about biochemistry or details, how to diagnose common diseases and how to treat them. So They were working in in a mountain range called the Kali Malai, which means in Tamil, the mountains of death. Mm. And they were called the mountains of death because of the malaria. It was a place of subtertian malaria with all its complications. And there were no doctors there of any description. So my parents had to do a lot of medical work. And I observed it as a child. There wasn't a hospital situation. It was kind of done on verandas and little clinics. And uh, dentistry, powerful tool, dentistry. <laughs> they never went anywhere without dental forceps. People who've been really, really suffering with decayed teeth and abscesses and so forth, they were so thankful to have somebody who could relieve them of the offending tooth.
0: And this was in the early 20s?
1: Yes, the, the late 10s mm-hmm. uh, and the early 20s. So uh, I saw it all. You know, it, it was just part of life to me, together with the preaching, And I was a preacher at age seven. We always used rolls of pictures. And uh, one of my parents would be telling the story of the shepherd and the lamb or something of this sort. And then they'd get called away. Maybe a baby was being born somewhere and mother had to go and take care of it. And she'd simply hand me the picture. And she'd say, you finish the story. (laughs) And so I'd be talking to a group of village people in Tamil. It was just absolutely a part of our life, and I couldn't really imagine... Andrew and I were the only people who spoke English in the entire mountain range. Wow. So most of our life was in Tamil. My fun was to be with the kids, the Indian kids in the paddy fields. I think one thing at that time, although I appreciated all that my parents were doing, many of the aspects of the medical stuff, kind of minor surgery, was, was stuff that turned me off, and particularly... In addition to malaria, the hills were full of guinea worm, and guinea worm you probably know is is a horrible worm about a metre, grows to a metre in length. People catch it by drinking water that's got the parasite, and uh, it gets into the system, and then it lies alongside a vein, almost always from the foot, past the knee, up into the thigh. Whenever the foot is put into cold water. The guinea worm can detect the fact that it's in cold water, and it sticks its uterus, its little tail, out between the toes and begins laying eggs into that water. And as soon as they take their foot out of the water, it withdraws back into the tissues again. Very neat little creature. (laughs) Unless uh, you have it yourself. (laughs) And the people get very upset with this. Uh, They can feel this worm in their thigh. And what they do, and what my parents did... Is to get a basin of water, put the foot in it, and as soon as the thing sticks its tail out, they catch it, and pull it, and you can pull about six inches out if you're careful, and then you roll it under a, a matchstick and wait, and then do another six inches, and you can gradually, gradually, if you're careful, pull the whole worm out, and the thing is cured. Over how long? Oh, you can do, you can do it over a period of a couple of days, mm-hmm. but you mustn't hurry. But people do hurry, they get impatient, and the worm breaks. And I shall never forget, it dies up the length of the leg. Every little bit of it causes an abscess. You get these huge legs, swollen legs, particularly in the popliteal fossa behind the knee. And patients would come to my father, and he'd just take one look and take a bucket and a knife and go out under the nearest tree and uh, stick a knife into the often multiple abscesses and we just get quarts of pus. Pus and blood, pus and blood. And this became, for me, synonymous with being a doctor.
0: I I can't see why you ever went into medicine.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I just hated this. I couldn't avoid going to see it. It kind of fascinated me, but I said to myself, subconsciously, I'm never, never going to be part of this. And uh, when my father died, my mother came back to England when I was at school by that time, and told me all about my father's last hours. And uh, she began talking. I was near the end of school. She said, you know, your father would love to have been a doctor. He almost decided to quit missionary work and go back and get qualified. And I I knew that he would like for you to be a doctor. Because of that, she said, I've talked to one of my my uncles, and... uh, he has said that he'll pay for all your expenses through medical school if you'll be a doctor and go and be a missionary. I said, no mother, I am not going to be a doctor. I'd love to be a missionary, I want to be a missionary. I'd like to do what daddy did. He built houses and churches and had an industrial school and he taught people agriculture, and, but not a doctor. I didn't actually talk about pus but, uh, or blood, <laughs> but that was in my mind. And she obviously was disappointed. But she wouldn't, wouldn't resist it. And then she said, well, what would, what would you like to do? I said, I don't want to go to university. I'm tired of school. I'd like to be a builder. I'd like to be an engineer. And uh, that following Sunday, a Christian builder came to preach at our church. He was a very godly man. Mother spoke to him afterwards. And uh, he said, sure, I'd love it. He can take evening classes in engineering, civil engineering, and, and we'll teach him carpentry and plumbing and bricklaying. And, and he did. And for four years plus, I spent mm. learning how to use my hands, learning how to use saws and chisels and hammers, and, and studying engineering. And then I applied to a mission society, and they said, well, you've got to go to Bible school first. And uh, so I said, yes, I do that. I went to to the missionary training colony. There we had to do a little medical kind of preparation thing, just how to take care of ourselves, rather like my father had done. And I can remember, uh, after I'd I'd done a a year or more medical school, and they sent me to a hospital to serve as what they called a dresser, a technician kind of, rather like a nurse. The first patient was a, a young woman, who they carried in on a, on a stretcher. And uh, I kind of got busy and I tried to feel her pulse and there wasn't one. She wasn't breathing. She was dead white, white lips, everything. And I just assumed she was dead. But then they rushed, they said, perhaps can save her life. And they rushed and got some blood. And they fixed up a blood transfusion above her head and they put it way up so to get a, a good positive pressure. And uh, I still couldn't feel anything, any sign of life. And then they said, you watch that. And uh, they didn't know I was absolutely new. (laughs) They said, you watch the blood, and when it gets near the bottom, you call us and we'll get another bottle. I just thought they were doing this to a dead person. As, As the second bottle began, I saw a flush come into her cheek. I felt her pulse begin. And then she opened her eyes and she looked at me. She said, I'm thirsty, I'm thirsty. So I dashed and got her a glass of water. She drank, and then she began to sort of try to sit up. And she was a beautiful girl, and I <laughs> I was just absolutely bowled over. Yeah. I thought, if this is what medicine can do. And I remember looking up the bottle. We had no blood bank, but there was the name of the donor and his address, and he came from the town where I had done my building training. And I imagined this great bag, tough fellow climbing the ladder with a hod of bricks over his shoulder, and I wondered if he knew what his blood had done. It really, really turned me around, and I am sure that those two opposite things my my hatred of this pussy mess in India, and then the sight of really what what blood is about and medicine can do, it just turned me around and i i Left my Bible school a little bit before the end and entered medical school. <laughs> my uncle paid, he kind of raised his eyebrows. He said, This fellow, Brand, he uh, <laughs> can't make up his mind, uh? <laughs> <laughs> He can't make up his mind. But, but I believe that God had made up his mind. Yeah. When I went to India, after, we were, after I became a doctor, the thing that hit me there was leprosy, which I hadn't any idea I was going to do. When I had done everything that I could with leprosy, the big need was how to get these guys with their insensitive hands, reconstructed hands, how to get them to make a living without having to get a job which nobody would take them. I built a little rehab center, put carpenters benches there, and I remember sitting there in the evening teaching them with their hands how to how to hold a saw on a plane, and <laughs> suddenly it kind of my eyes opened. And I thought, this is exactly what was being done for me in England before ever I became a doctor, before ever I Mm -hmm. thought of becoming a doctor. God knew that I was going to do leprosy work. He knew that this would require an industrial rehabilitation for the patients. And he thought to himself, if I let Bran get a medical qualification before he learns building and tools, he'll never go back to the tools. Mm -hmm. Let's get the tools and the rehabilitation part of it out of the way. Then we can do send him medicine, and then he can go out to the field. That's exactly how it worked.
0: God doesn't waste anything. <laughs> That's right. It was, It was.
1: I mean, looking at the glory of being old, you know. Yeah. Old is a miserable thing, but <laughs> the glory of it is that you can look back and you see patterns developing, and uh, it was very exciting.
0: Let's jump back. I mean, this, uh, there's so many different areas I want to get into. When you were with your parents in India, where were you getting your education? Did they educate you? Yes, or? my
1: mother. And we were homemade. I was educated up a tree. We had a. <laughs> I chose. I just loved the outdoors. I mean, I, growing up in a mountain like in India was just what I would say is the perfect education. I often tell my wife if she becomes pregnant again, <laughs> uh, she's over 80 now, but uh, we're going straight back to India and we're going to bring up the kids up in the mountains.
0: Yeah, I tell people the best place to raise the children in the world is on the mission field. That's right. And uh, oh. I thank God more for that than anything else. Right, right. It's uh, just a privilege. Yes. Well, then you went, you were educated there to what age, and then you said you went to England?
1: My parents' first furlough uh, was after he'd been in India for 12 years, mm. and uh, because of World War I. Mm-hmm. So we went to England when I was uh, 9, coming on 10, and then I went into regular school, and I lived with my grandmother and her two unmarried daughters who just gave their lives looking after these two wild kids from India. <laughs> and uh, they, were, they were God's people.
0: So your parents were back in India and you were in England. How did that, how did that affect you?
1: Well, I don't think was, there's was no harm. Uh, I know many missionaries have, have real problems, and we had problems when we, were, when we had kids. Mm-hmm. But uh, this home that my mother had come from was an ideal place. And the devoted, devoted aunts who took care of us, it was a a godly place. And uh, I never really enjoyed school. It just seemed that they were learning a lot of irrelevant things. And I wanted to get out and get busy with climbing trees. And I wasn't really very good at school. And so as soon as I could, as soon as I had my matriculation in England, I was glad to get out and, and begin to work.
0: What happened to your dad? You mentioned that he died. Yes. What happened? That was why you were in England?
1: Uh, yeah, uh, I was in England. He was back in India. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he died then of, of malaria. My mother came home uh, after a few months, and uh, she was in a desperate, desperate depression mm-hmm. from this, felt that she hadn't taken proper care of him. And... But at the end of the year, she, her faith came back, and uh, she went back to India and worked until she was 96. Oh,
0: my goodness.
1: Uh, by herself up in another range of mountains, living very simply, riding horseback everywhere until she was about 90. We, she complained that her horse was getting too old and she kept falling <laughs> off. <laughs> but uh, uh, she just went on working until she really couldn't walk.
0: I'm sure loved by the people.
1: I went up when she was about 93 or so to try to persuade her to retire. Because by this time, I was out in India teaching medicine. And uh, I went up the mountains to, to see her and say, look, why don't you come down and, and live with us? We'd just love to have you and the students can learn from you and you'll be doing good work. And she said, well, just come with me to the village. And uh, she got in a and we went over to the village. And as soon as people saw her coming... Some of the young men rushed out and took away her, her sticks and carried her and uh, put her on a little low wall outside the village. Everybody just came rushing, Amma has come, Amma has come. And uh, I saw that great throng of mostly women, the men were out in the fields, as she just talked about Jesus. And then they asked questions and they brought her their children. But as I just saw that crowd of people sitting there, adoring her I mean they just she was their grandmother and uh, uh, to 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 see the light in their eyes and the questions they asked and the way they hung on her every word I knew that that's where she belonged mm. and uh, I couldn't persuade her to to come down so she stayed up there until within about a month of her death mm. and uh, uh, she's buried up there I was there three weeks ago <laughs> I saw her my father and mother's graves side by side mm. up in the mountains with the church going strong.
0: What a wonderful blessing. How did it affect you when your dad died?
1: I almost lost my faith because we had always assumed that if you prayed, God would heal. And uh, uh, it was a terrible... People said, said to me, you know, Romans eight twenty eight, all things work together for good. Therefore, it must have been a good thing that he died because mm. he loved God. And I couldn't buy that. Uh, I knew he was needed. I knew he had a critical work to do, and he was only 43. And uh, I just couldn't believe that if God was all powerful, He shouldn't have saved him. I said, you know, I can't imagine God talking to a mosquito and saying, "Listen, now that you've bitten a uh, malaria patient, you've got to go over there to that man. He's a white man, and he's preparing next Sunday's sermon. You go and bite him because he's got to die." I always have loved F. F. Bruce the. Um, theologian who has written wonderful commentaries on Romans and he he helped me he he says the Greek of that text is not that things work for good it is that in everything that happens God works for good with those who love him now this has happened and you don't say to God why me Lord you say to the Lord well look Lord what's happened to us now what are we going to do about it? How do we bring good out of it? He he just um, helped me to understand that things happen, good things happen, bad things happen. They happen because of the weather. They happen because planes crash and earthquakes happen. And it doesn't distinguish between the good and the bad. And sicknesses happen. But our responsibility is to seek God's help in trying to bring some good out of these situations. Anyway, he helped me, and and, and by the time I was. Uh, a few years older, it had. Uh, I'd come to terms with the whole thing and and just wanted to do the kind of thing that he had been doing.
0: Mm. He must have been your idol in a way. I oh, mean, he was. A great he example. Was
1: yes, yes, he was. How yes. did you
0: meet Margaret? We want, to know, we want to know the love story here, how all this it's happened. It's a very,
1: very, are you ready for this? It's a very <laughs> romantic,
0: very, okay, very I'm ready. romantic. I'm we ready. were both
1: freshmen at the same time in medical school. Yeah. She had had a lot of study in preparation, and I had had none. But we were both at the same stage. And uh, her name began with a B. She was a berry, and my name began with a B of Brandon. Therefore, they put us at the same bench, and we shared the same sink in the chemistry laboratory. And uh, that was our...
0: Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you met over a beaker, huh? <laughs> That's right.
1: She had not been a Christian in all her early years, but she had been to Fresher's meeting of the Christian Medical Society hmm. uh, in in England, wow. and uh, and there she had met uh, Howard Guinness and uh, Douglas Johnson and the towering leaders of those years, and uh, she had given her heart to the Lord, and she was just about a year old Christian when we hmm. when we met, and her background was was very medical. Her parents, uh, her father was a doctor, and her mother was a nurse. And when I said to her one day, you know they're having a PM this midday, why don't you come along with me? She said, oh yes, I'd like to come to a PM. She knew what a PM was because her father was always doing post-mortems. So we went along the corridor and they we went into a room and everybody was kneeling down praying because to me, a PM was a prayer meeting. <laughs> <laughs> that just shows the difference in our background. <laughs>
0: Different expectations.
1: <laughs> the war interrupted we were all evacuated from London because of the bombing. And uh, she was sent to Sheffield and I was sent to Cardiff. And, huh. uh,
0: this was during medical school?
1: During medical school. But ultimately, at the end of it all, we uh, got together and I said to her, look, I think both of us want to be missionaries. If God calls either of us and gives us a sp- specific call, wherever that is, we'll both go. And uh, so That we was knew, your proposal? That was my proposal. <laughs> I said, if you agree to that, then... Please marry me. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, uh, so so we were engaged, and we were married in London. I was still working towards my surgical fellowship, what we call boards here. I knew that to do what I wanted to do in in the way of uh, medical work, I wanted to have a, a qualification. And finally, when I'd got it, we already had my little son, Christopher, And then came the call. Dr. Cochrane in India was at that moment the director of the Christian Medical College and uh, the Madras University had just agreed that the Christian Medical College could begin to grant university degrees and train people for higher qualifications. Cochrane had agreed with them that he would see to it that we had the correct minimum number in every department And the correct minimum number for surgery was two. There had to be two people with either boards from America or FRCS from England. And he had that. Various sources all over India, various missions had contributed their best staff. And they gathered together for this. And then just before, like a month maybe, or two months before that inspection, when the university was going to come out and check everything, one of the two surgeons developed tuberculosis and had to be sent back to England, and they only had one senior teaching-quality surgeon, and so Cochrane sent me a telegram. I didn't know where he knew of me, but he sent me a telegram, said, you're urgently needed at the Christian Medical College. Can you come right away? <laughs> and um,
0: Maybe your mother told on you.
1: He did. She did. <laughs> she had.
0: <laughs> I could see her doing that. She
1: had told on me, and... Uh, and he had said, oh, it's no use. We can't take anybody just because he's your son. We have to find people with an FRCS. Well, she said, he's just got his FRCS. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyhow, he he came over to England. I was supposed to be joining the uh, armed forces because I hadn't been called up during the war, so I had to be filling in afterwards. But he fixed it. He, I don't know what he did. <laughs> he told them that the work in India was more significant, and yeah. they seemed to agree, and... And so I went off, and... Uh,
0: what year was that?
1: That was um, in uh, 46. And uh, left Margaret behind. She had just been delivered of, of our first girl. So she had a baby, a newborn baby, and, and a little boy. And I said, uh, I'll be writing to you, and if this looks as if it's a long-term job, I'll send for you. If it's only a short-term thing, I'll come home. So I left her, and that was a dramatic thing. At about that time, the British were preparing to leave India and the Muslims and the Hindus in North India were having terrible battles and riots uh, because Jinnah was wanting Pakistan to separate from India and be a Muslim state and uh, Nehru wanted India to remain as one piece. And they said that as soon as England left, as soon as the British Empire relinquished its authority there were going to be massacres and that all white people were going to be killed. The English papers were full of this, but the government papers in India, especially in South India where everything was very peaceful, didn't comment on it very much. And so I was just saying this is a wonderful place, you must come, it's great for kids. And she was hearing from her parents, who still were not keen Christians, that it would be absolutely crazy to um, take two little kids out into that kind of potential bloodbath. And she was beginning to feel that, that maybe she shouldn't go. She couldn't bear to think of leaving the kids behind, but she was in a terrible state. And yet she had my invitation to come, and she wrote, she wrote to me, and I replied by telegram. When I sensed her fear, I said, better not come now, I'll I'll come back at Christmas. With that telegram, she couldn't decide whether to go on packing or not. And when she showed it to the dear aunts who brought me up and uh, told them about this dilemma, they just said, well, let's pray, let's pray. We'll pray right beside the telephone where they had the message from me. Auntie Hope was praying and praying, please show Margaret. And Margaret had a distinct, authentic vision. Mm. She'd never had one before or since. And she saw a man in white, in white robes, pointing to the sunrise. The sun was just coming up, pointing to the sunrise. And she said, Lord, if this means that I've got to go, you've got to take away my fear. And suddenly, she just had a tremendous peace. She just stood up and said to Aunt Hope, you don't need to pray. I know. I'm going. And it was a, it was a remarkable thing. She was, from that time on, she was completely at peace. No, mm. no, no semblance of the old fear. And so she packed up and put the kids on the boat. And came out to me, and we've been there not quite ever since. But <laughs> <laughs>
0: what a wonderful story yes. of God's faithfulness. I tell yes. you, what a, I, think, I think what I sense more than anything else, Paul, is that when God calls you, you answer, and he takes care of the details, whether it's two little kids or a war or <laughs> <laughs> uh, independence coming and all the rest of it. Mm. Uh...
1: And the interesting thing is, that happened in the morning, that vision. In the evening, the radio had an interview with uh, Lord Louis Mountbatten, who Mm -hmm. was the viceroy of India at that time, the British viceroy, saying that finally Jinnah and Gandhi and Nehru had come to an agreement and they had divided Pakistan away from India and all the riots were settling down.
0: But she had
1: to. She had to make her decision in the morning because of the shipping company. Mm -hmm. They had booked a cabin for her. They said that after June, whatever it was, that cabin will be given to somebody else. Uh, unless we get confirmation from you. So she had to make a clear decision in the morning, and in the evening she had the confirmation on the, on the political side.
0: What were those early days like for you all as missionaries?
1: Well, busy is the first word. When Margaret came, there was need for an additional helper in pediatrics, and so she became a pediatrician, which was okay because she'd had quite a bit of pediatric experience working with her father after she'd qualified. Uh, I, of course, was teaching surgery, the striking thing in my life, I was just teaching general surgery with a, with a bias to orthopedics, which is the major part of my training. Outside the hospital, all along the street, were beggars. And the beggars were outside the temples and outside the bus stops and so forth. But as I saw these beggars on my way in, many of them seemed to have claw hands. Many of them had terrible ulcers on their feet with flies buzzing all over around them. And these people were exposing their their deformities. And I said, who are these, who are these beggars? Why don't they come inside the hospital? We, we can tr- try and treat their deformities. And they said, oh, they're lepers. They're lepers. We could never take a leper. If we took a leper into the hospital, all the other patients would run away. Uh, we've got to keep this as a medical college. They'll have to, if they want medical care, they can go to one of the Christian uh, mission colonies, leper colonies. They were called lepers in those days. But I couldn't get away from this, that I had done a lot of polio surgery and uh, was continuing to do polio work, and I enjoyed it. And these clawed hands with paralyzed thumbs and all the fingers bent into the fist, I couldn't see them without wanting to to do something about them. And so um, the hospital director Dr. Cochrane had been a leprosy specialist before he came to the medical college. He invited me to come to his previous leprosy institution, and he gave me a real tour, pointing out papules and macules and nodules and patches and how to look for the edge of a patch and pointed out that there was no sensation in the tuberculoid patches. And He was really giving me a lesson. I said to him, Bob, I've had enough dermatology. Uh, <laughs> tell me about these hands... Why do the fingers fall off? Why do some of them have no no fingers? And what about the clawing of the hands? He said, I can't tell you. He said, all I can tell you is that it happens in leprosy. But why it happens, I don't know. And just about then, there was a man trying to get his attention, wanting to show his feet. And he was trying. He squatted on the ground and tried to undo the buckle of his sandal. He had claw hands, but all his fingers were still there and uh, he couldn't get this, this buckle loose, and so Cochrane stooped down and did it for him and looked at the ulcer. And then this young man stood up, and I forget how it started. Cochrane may have said, now there's a typical claw hand for you. So I took hold of his hand, and I pulled the fingers straight and then let go, and I was glad to find that the joints were all mobile, and the fingers snapped back into the clenched position as soon as I let go. I'd seen how weak he was trying to take his handle off. So I pulled the fingers open, put my hand into his open hand, and said, "Now squeeze my hand. Squeeze as hard as you can. And that was my change of life from one life to another life. Mm. He crushed my hand. He had long fingernails, and the fingernails dug into my skin, and I cried out in pain. I was really a moment of agony. I said, I don't know what I said, but I felt like saying, let go, you fool, <laughs> uh, you're breaking my hand. And then I looked at his face, he, he let go, and I saw a sweet, gentle smile on his face. And he was obviously saying to himself, what a strange white man. He tells me to squeeze as hard as I can, and then when I do, he gets angry. And then I felt that I knew all the answers. If he had had feeling in his hand, it would have hurt his fingers, not just my hand. And if he grasped the handle of a hammer or an axe and started using that kind of a grip, it would destroy his fingertips and he'd have wounds which would start the infections which would destroy his hands. I believe at that moment that I knew the answers to the major question in my mind about leprosy. And almost at the same moment, Cochrane was saying to me, He said, you go back to your hospital and look in the library and you won't find a single article about the deformities of the hand and foot in leprosy written by an orthopedic surgeon because the only people who take care of leprosy are physicians and dermatologists. I knew at that moment with absolute certainty, I knew that this was why I was in India. I had no idea about any particular disease while I was in England. I knew I had to go and teach to fill the quota for the, for the university, that's why I went. But it was after, a, a good year after uh, I had been in India that uh, I went to this leprosy hospital and then it became an absolute passion with me to know why and how the disease destroyed hands and and, and why a man with such weakness in the muscles that open his fingers and he had no muscle to bring the thumb forward in front of his hand to grasp, could yet have such enormously powerful, absolutely normal muscles to close his fist. And uh, others that I examined showed a similar pattern, but I had to find out why it was. When I got back to the law, to the medical college, I sent notes to all people who were in charge of leprosy clinics. And I said, if as soon as any of you have a, a patient who dies, and whose relatives are willing for him to have an autopsy post-mortem. Please let me know. I'll, I'll drop everything, whatever I'm doing, and, and I'll come. And sure enough, within a couple of weeks, at the same place where I had been before, telephoned or sent a message to say that they had a patient who was just dying or who had just died. And the family would pick him up the following morning at 6 o'clock. And if I could do it before then, they were willing for the autopsy. So I jumped into our Land Rover took a technician, pathology technician, with me and dozens of bottles of formalin for specimens. And a woman who was my surgical assistant, we piled into that Land Rover. <laughs> on, on the way, the engine blew up because somebody had loosened a union nut and we had to drive it off the road and put sand all over the flames, and leave the machine there. And then we started walking with all these bottles. (laughs) It was about 80 miles. And uh, finally we found a Christian mission school, and the schoolmaster was able to locate a car for us. And so we finally got to the leprosy hospital about maybe 1 o'clock in the morning, I don't know exactly what time, but certainly after midnight. And he had a hurricane lantern in each hand. He knew he was expecting us. And he took us with these two swinging hurricane lanterns through the leprosarium and out the gate at the back to an area of kind of wildish country close to the sea. And there was a hut. He opened the creaky door, and uh, there inside the hut was a table. And on the table was the body of an elderly man who had leprosy. And uh, this watchman hung a hurricane lantern on the roof rafters over our head and uh, said we'll be back for the body at 6 in the morning and there we were the three of us <laughs> with this dim dim light from a single wick hurricane and there was no electricity but fortunately by the grace of god we had each got a pen torch and uh, the surgical assistant on one side and me on the other started dissecting from the shoulder down to the fingertips and from the hip down to the feet all the nerves supplying all the muscles and on her side, she took specimens at about every two centimeters and gave them to the technician to put into formalin, having marked where they were. And on my side, I left them in continuity, just exposing them. We could never see more than a six-inch circle of light. And so we never saw the, the whole of a nerve. We worked away and worked away, and it was a stuffy place and terrible atmosphere and a kind of a generalized stench. And this crazy swinging light... We worked for four hours, or maybe nearer five, and I began finding along the course of these nerves, the nerve would look normal for a few inches, and then it would look swollen and inflamed, and then it would look normal, and then there'd be another piece, and uh, and the same was in other other nerves. Some were normal all the way down, but at the elbow, for example, the median nerve looked normal all the way down, The ulnar nerve came down normal from the axilla and then going around the epicondyle, it was swollen and uh, nothing made any sense. I could never think why these things were like this. Obviously, the swollen, inflamed areas were where the thing had been damaged by the disease. But the in-between areas looked so beautiful. And so, as the dawn began to rise, we knew they were coming and we had to get things stitched up but we just couldn't stand the atmosphere in that place. And so we said, let's all have a breath of fresh air. When we swung the door open. The sea was over there, and the sun was just beginning to rise. As the sun came up, we were bathed in that lovely, lovely sunrise light and took deep breaths of beautiful, pure air. And then we looked back, and I was just standing outside the door of this hut, and the sun shone straight onto the arm that I had been dissecting. Suddenly, this blazing sunlight of the sunrise, focused as it seemed, streamed into the door. There, And there was the answer, absolutely displayed in perfection.
0: Wow. Stay tuned for the next issue of Dr. Paul Brand, Missionary Doctor. Uh, You're going to have to pick up the next issue of Christian Doctors' Digest to hear the rest of this wonderful interview. We've just run out of space.